to that. So as we start today, I have a question for you. I always seem to start off with a question, but it kind of helps, in my opinion, it helps us get going here. So my question is this, have you ever lost anything? Okay, everybody, every service always starts to chuckle a little bit at that, like there's some funny story, and I always want to hear what it is, but um, I think that all of us have been there at some point, where we, we cannot find the TV remote. It's not where it should be. In fact, by itself, it somehow crawled into a crevice of the couch that nobody knew existed. And so you, after months of searching, finally just go and buy a new universal remote, and you come home, and there's the old one just sitting out like it never left, Right? Um, or maybe it's like this, you go to the refrigerator and you open it up and there are your car keys, right, on the top shelf. Some of you have been there, you get that. For men, we have this issue where anything that we've been sent to find disappears. But the moment our wife goes to look, it reappears. And I don't know how it works, it's a phenomenon of nature, okay? Uh, but there's, there's something in my house, uh, a particular person who will go unnamed, um, who tends to lose a particular thing, and that is chapstick, okay? Now, you may think, eh, that's no big deal, but you do not understand, okay? I will go and buy a three-pack of this person's uh, chosen chapstick. I'll open it up. I will hand them one of them. I will turn around and put the other two in their box in a cabinet to keep them safe, and by the time I turn back around, that one is gone. It's kind of, you may think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not, okay? There are times we go on hunts for chapstick around the house, and in five minutes, I'll find five to ten chapsticks hiding in different places. We'll pull out a coat that hasn't been used in months and find five or six chapsticks plotting their revenge for being forgotten in the pocket, okay? And it's amazing. We celebrate finding lost chapsticks. We also have a major celebration when a chapstick has been used completely. Like, it's not just lost forever. It doesn't get melted in the dryer. It gets used all the way through. We celebrate this. But most of the time when that happens, it's already been lost two or three times before we get to that point. But um, some of you are still thinking it's not a big deal, but someday when you have a budget line for just chapstick, you'll understand, okay? I'm at the point now where I pack extra chapsticks in my bag when we leave town because I know it's the only safe place where they will not be lost. And I don't tell this person that I have them until she's already lost one. Oops, I just revealed maybe who it is. Okay, so now, moving on. (laughs) While lost chapsticks don't really make or break us in the long run, right? Uh, there is something else that's been lost in the church, and it has caused the church to suffer, uh, to change, and it's definitely not for the better. And so what we're going to do today, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this uh, section where we see the start of the early church. This is what we know as the day of Pentecost. Now, if you don't understand what that was, the day of Pentecost was the day that the Jews would gather to celebrate the giving of the law. It was to commemorate the fact that God had given the law to Moses and to his people, his nation of Israel. And so they would celebrate this with a feast. The word Pentecost simply means 50th because it took place 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. If you go through the Old Testament uh, where God gave the law to the Israelites, you will see these different feasts and festivals that they uh, were required to partake of as part of their worship of God. And so these were in there. So 
I'm going to give you an overview of this. It's kind of funny and, and amazing that on the day they were celebrating the giving of the law, God gave them something even greater to celebrate with the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's an awesome thing. But we're going to look at an overview of what's been going on here leading up to the section that I want us to look at. So just before this, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Okay? He, he's resurrected. He spends 40 days with his disciples, appearing to them and spending time with them. And then he ascends into heaven, but he promises them this, that coming soon uh, is the Holy Spirit. And it is better that I go and he come. It will be better for you to have the Holy Spirit than for me to just remain here with you. So there's a group of 120 of these believers that have been gathering together in Jerusalem for about a 10-day uh, prayer time. So they've been together for 10 days, and on that 10th day, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit showed up and indwells them. We know this section of Scripture, it was like they heard the sound of a mighty wind rushing in where they were, tongues of fire appeared above their heads, and they began speaking the truths of God in many different languages. They step out of the place where they were meeting, and they start sharing these truths with the thousands that were gathered to celebrate this feast. And so it's, it's an incredible moment. And then Peter stands up and he boldly shares the gospel with the crowds and 3,000 people put their faith in Christ that day. That is incredible. I want you to imagine how exciting that would be to be one of those 120 believers And you're standing there, uh, you've been praying, the Holy Spirit shows up, you're not exactly sure what's going on, you're not sure what's going to happen really, but Peter stands up and starts speaking and thousands of people come forward and put their faith in Christ. That would be an exciting time to be one of those 120. That would be an amazing moment to see, okay? So... Now we get to the section that I want to look at today. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let's read this together. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over, all, or came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with a great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I love that the response of the believers to the day of Pentecost, the response of this group was not to pat each other on the back and congratulate each other on a great event and then go home for the week. They, they saw what happened and they daily came together after that. It's like they moved in together. They became a group, a body that was one family living together. They, uh, in this section, they didn't just gather once a week to learn, but their devotion was daily gathering together in the temple to worship. They ate together, cared for each other's needs. They learned together, worshiped together, prayed together, shared communion together, and truly did life together as one body that was growing with new believers daily. This is an incredible thing, and it's the model with which we put together our life groups program here at the church. It's the idea of doing life together, outside of just the once-a-week meeting, getting together with the body to live out our devotion to Christ. Now, I think it's an amazing thing to see what these people were doing, but my question is this. 
why are we not seeing this kind of thing today? Why are we not seeing people coming to Christ on a regular basis today? Why is it they're seeing people coming daily to join them in their belief of Jesus? And today we, we struggle to see it weekly, if monthly. What is going on that has changed? Now many pastors have argued and some have, uh, have taught that uh, the church was growing so exponentially because they had not faced any persecution up to this point. Now, I have an issue with that because you need to understand what happened 50 days before this. 50 days before this, Jesus is crucified after being falsely accused, tried, convicted, and then brutally murdered in front of them. This is the founder of their entire belief and faith system that they have been following, and he is brutally crucified in front of them. Now, we look and say, yeah, but he rose again. But that does not take the image out of their minds of him being killed for what they were standing up for, for what he had taught, for what they believed. I think that if we were to have somebody in our church even who were to be put to death for what we believe, even 50 days ago, we would still be struggling to want to come back. We'd be fighting this. We'd be feeling nervous about what could happen to me, no matter what came after that. And we know that the disciples struggled with this. Even when they went to see Jesus, when he was ascending to heaven, it says they saw him and they worshiped him and they doubted. (laughs) See, they're struggling. They're not just getting there and going, look, everything's good now. They're still going, but what are we going to do if they come after us? (laughs) But what's going to happen? So I want you to think about this. We often don't consider the crucifixion of Christ as persecution against the church, but that's exactly what it was. Why was he crucified? Because he was teaching things different than what they wanted him to teach. That's why he was crucified. It's persecution against what he taught and what he stood for. So in this, not only do we see that kind of persecution going on at this time already, but we also see persecution on the day of Pentecost. A lot of us overlook it. But the truth is, if we were to experience this here in America today, many of us would completely give up on our faith for a while. Here's what happened. They step out of the place they were meeting, which we read it as a house, but the word actually in the Greek referred more often to the temple. So they were probably 120 of them gathered for 10 days in a room of the temple praying. They step out into the streets with all of the people there. They start speaking in different languages, sharing truth of God. And here's what some people say. Some people say, don't listen to them. They've lost their minds. They're drunk. They're just drunk. Okay? Now, I've been around drunk people before, and they didn't really speak other languages to me. But I love this moment because I want you to think about for you, if you were out boldly teaching about Jesus to people even in the Walmart parking lot, and someone said, don't listen to them, they lost their mind, they're drunk. That in our nation would be considered pretty extreme persecution compared to uh, what we're used to, what we would desire. We don't like the idea of someone thinking bad things about us or saying something rude to us because of our belief. And so by our own standard of major persecution... These people are facing it this day. And Peter stands up boldly and goes, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. He literally said that. And that's what I love about Peter. The guy was not very eloquent to start, but he got going. It was good. So persecution was happening, but it didn't seem to matter. And the question is why? 
Well, I believe it is because of what we see in verse 43. Let's go back and read that. Acts 2 verse 43, it says this, a deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Now, some of you read that and you say, well, yeah, if I was seeing miracles performed around me, uh, I'd be a lot more bold in my faith to share the gospel with people. But I want to share something with you about miracles you may not know. Miracles do not help our faith. That's a hard one in our culture because currently there's a strong movement of we want to see miracles. We want to see a miracle happen. Now, while there's nothing wrong with desiring miracles, there is an issue that comes in when we believe they will help our faith. This is not a new movement. This was the same movement going on back when Jesus was walking around. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus performing miracles, and people came in droves. They were amazed, and they followed him until he didn't perform the miracle they wanted or he refused to perform miracles when they demanded. You see, uh, if you don't trust me on this, read John chapter 6. We've been studying this with the college group uh, that we meet on Monday nights. We've been going through the book of John, and we just finished John chapter 6. This is an amazing chapter. Jesus takes a lunchable and feeds 5,000 men and their families. It's this incredible thing. He walks on water and then he calls this group of believers or this group of followers of his to believe, to uh, accept the bread of life. And here's what they say to him. No, prove to us who you are again. Do another miracle. Do, do something else that's amazing. We want to see something awesome. What you're teaching us is weird. <laughs> do another miracle. He doesn't give them what they want. Instead, he shares the gospel with them in a really intense but clear way when you listen to it. And what do they do? They say, he's not doing miracles, that's it. And they walk away from him. Now, what you don't know about these people, maybe from the story, is they literally camped out all night waiting for him after he fed them. So these are people that were excited about him. These are people devoted to him. And the moment he didn't perform the miracles, they didn't want nothing to do with him because... The miracles do not grow their faith. In fact, Jesus holds those who witness miracles to an even harsher judgment because they were given proof of who he was and yet refused to believe. Matthew eleven twenty through 24, we see Jesus talking about this. It says, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead, for if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on judgment day than you. Man, that's, that's heavy, harsh words coming from Jesus about the places that he had performed miracles, but we need to understand something. Miracles do not create a boldness in our faith, they create a laziness. Faith, by definition, is a confident assurance in what I have not seen. And miracles are me seeing it, right? I no longer have to lean on confident assurance in what I don't, I cannot prove, I can prove it. So faith itself is no longer needed when I see it, right? That's what we talk about, our faith being made sight. When we stand before him, we will no longer need this faith because we will have it right in front of us. But see, that's what miracles do, is they give us a glimpse 
a sign, a wonder, a, a miraculous thing that we look at and say, wow, see, it's real. And it doesn't cause our faith to grow. It causes us to set it aside. And so we need to realize something about this. Miracles cause us to long for more miracles because I'll see something amazing and just like the 5,000, I'll wait around and then the next time I feel hungry, I want another miracle. The next time there's a struggle, I want another miracle. I don't lean back on faith. I look for him to prove himself again. And that's a problem. We are just like the crowds around Jesus. We see one miracle and demand more so that God can prove himself to us. And miracles are not what caused the body in the book of Acts to thrive. If you look back at that verse, verse 43, there was something else in there. It was their awe. When I say the word awe, I want you to understand what I mean. The word used here for awe is the Greek word phobos. This word is used 45 times in the New Testament, and you've heard it more often than you think, because this is the same Greek word that is used for fear, and most often when it's representing fear of the Lord or fear of God. To many believers, including myself, this commonly used term, fear of God or to fear God, uh, has been a bit confusing. Uh, to, I've heard many analogies trying to explain it, and yet I still find myself confused quite often by it. And the problem is this, when we use our common analogies, our common stories when it comes to describing things of God, we most often shortchange the reality of what's going on by making the same mistake that Nicodemus made and the woman at the well, and again, these 5,000 that he had fed. See, Nicodemus, Jesus is talking to him, and he says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, how is someone supposed to enter back in their mother's womb and be born again? That's weird. I don't get that. You see, Jesus is talking in spiritual terms and Nicodemus immediately thinks in worldly terms. The woman at the well, he says, I want to give you living water, water that you drink and you will never thirst again. And she says, you don't have a bucket or a rope. How are you going to reach into this deep well? He's speaking spiritually. She's thinking worldly. The 5,000. He says, I am the bread of life. You must consume me. And they say, he is talking about crazy weird stuff. We don't want this. They didn't understand because they were thinking literally, not spiritually. They were thinking of what they could come up with in their human way of thinking, but they weren't understanding that he was talking spiritually. And that's the problem with a lot of our analogies about fear of God is that they use, they use these worldly terms to try to explain a spiritual thing. I'm going to give you an example here real quick. This is one that I've heard uh, that was explained to me to help me understand fearing God. So there is a contest going on. Uh, this circus has put it out there that people can enter and win a chance to go backstage with their lion tamer. So this group of guys, they enter and they win. They get to go and they meet up with the lion tamer. He takes them into the tent. They see this incredible beast, this lion in the cage. And, and they're excited about it. It's an amazing thing to see. They're just in awe of how incredible looking this animal is. And they sit around. And he says, you don't have to sit back in the stands. Come stand right up around the, the cage here. He won't come over to you. Don't worry. Just stand right around the cage. And so they get right up there. The lion tamer goes in. He picks up his chair and his whip and he starts cracking the whip in the air and yelling out commands and the lion is doing everything that he tells him to. Now, being guys, they're seeing this man, you know, be very dominant over this animal and they start getting excited about it. They're cheering for him. 
They're amazed by how this lion will do what even seems to be kind of embarrassing tricks because this guy just tells him to do it. And they start cheering about the power that man has over this beast. Now the lion tamer finishes his show and the guys are clapping and cheering for him. And he takes a bow and he says, now I want to show you the same show. But I want to do it from a different perspective. And he goes and he opens the door of the cage and he says, come in here. So the guys, having watched what they just saw, are pretty bold. They start heading in. And the moment, though, they step through that door and realize there is nothing between me and that lion Suddenly, they stop cheering. They get really quiet. They don't stand really close. They kind of stand back against the bars. And the lion tamer begins doing his show. The men aren't cheering or clapping. They're not saying much of anything. They're not really even smiling because the moment they stepped in there, they realized something. That lion could kill us all in seconds. The ability that lion has demands my respect when I'm in its presence. And see, that's where we like to go with our idea of fearing God. It's the idea that God deserves our respect. Now, I do agree with that. This is where we get the problem, though. While God is infinitely powerful and deserving of respect, he is also infinitely loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. So how do I treat a lion with respect, I stay back from it. I don't go near it. I don't poke it with a stick. I definitely do not approach it with confidence. I try to avoid it. And when we see God as a lion, we do the same thing. We stand back. We have this fear that we might agitate him and then he'll attack us. We hide. I look from a distance. I avoid close contact in case he might see my sin and smite me for it. See, the problem with this analogy is it only shows us one side of God. And it draws us to this idea of fear being afraid, a fear-driven respect that is, he can hurt me, so I'm not going anywhere near him, is what ends up happening. We only see half the character of God. And for someone who doesn't know Jesus, I can understand this kind of fear. But for someone who knows Christ, knows the promises of God through Jesus, there is no need for that. Something should change. It's not that we don't have respect for God, but we need to understand there's a whole side of God that we miss if this is all we see. So we're going to look, we're going to change this. Instead of looking at the idea of fear through human terms, we're going to look at it spiritually. This word phobos is used for both fear and awe interchangeably in a lot of places in the New Testament, and I think that we have made a disconnect that we need to plug back in. We remove this idea of awe from the call to fear God, And because of that, we are missing out on what it looks like to truly be the church. Remember, the early church was filled with awe, and the result of this was people were coming to Christ daily. So again, we need to jump back and figure out the answer to this question. What is awe? The answer, uh, in order to answer that, we have to quickly look at our view of God and moreover, his view of us, okay? I was listening to a sermon this last week. And, and the pastor brought up something that I didn't realize I was guilty of until he explained it. I always hate when pastors do that, where they're sharing something, you're like, oh, I didn't know that, and I was better off not knowing that. Now that I know it, I feel guilty. This was one of those moments, and it was this idea of God's disappointment. Most of us have the same view of God that he's looking down on us with this heartbroken disappointment in our failures and sin. 
that when we sin, God is really upset and disappointed in us. And that's what he sees. And, and we read of Jesus' return, and we have this picture in our mind of him catching us in some embarrassing or shameful act uh, and being very disappointed in us when he gets here. My question is this. Where did that idea come from? It didn't come from Scripture. I'll just tell you that. The idea comes from things like this, where you hear someone say a bad word, and then their mom looks at them and says, do you want Jesus to hear you say that when he comes back? Would you want Jesus to catch you doing that when he gets here? You see, we have this fear-driven idea of Jesus' return. But I want to look... I want to look together in Scripture here because, in fact, while God's wrath will be poured out on those who do not believe for the believer, there's a vast difference in his approach and his return. So, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 38. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what it says. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servant who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before the dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. I want you to think of this for a moment, okay? Jesus comes back, he gets us all together, takes us to a big banquet table, puts on an apron, and serves us lunch, That kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds very different than what we like to picture with his return. And yet Jesus himself just described that. We we picture Jesus returning with fire and lightning, right? Coming back and setting fire to the evil of our world. And yet in this situation, Jesus describes his return much more like your boss inviting you over for a barbecue to celebrate a good quarter, right? It's a very different idea in this. And you may have missed this in verse 36, but it said that we are to be waiting for our master as though he was returning from a wedding feast. And I don't think we understand fully what this means, but I'm going to give you two scenarios to help you understand how we have been viewing it and how he wants us to view it. So here's the first one. Picture with me, if you will, you're sitting at a parent-teacher conference. (laughs) Oh, I hear the students up here going, oh no, don't bring this up, this isn't good, but you're sitting there and, and your student, uh, your student's teacher is sitting across from you and they're explaining to you, okay, so they've been improving in this area, but we do have a few things to talk about. That's when they always like pull out the list and you're going, oh, there's a list, oh no, okay. They start going through and they're naming off things that your student has been doing that are either disruptive in the classroom or, or they're just not really paying attention or they keep getting in trouble for the same thing and then they get down to it and say, you know what, your student's actually failing in two to three of our classes and if they don't improve their grades here quickly, we're going to have to hold them back and make them repeat this year, okay? Now you, as a parent, you get in the car embarrassed and frustrated disappointed. You're practicing your we need to work harder speech as you're on your way home, right? You step into the door at your house and you see your student slink down the hallway and quietly close their door behind them, right? Because they know that what they've been trying to hide has finally been exposed and there is wrath coming, right? They know this is going to go on. This is how most of us picture Jesus's return. Like he's been sitting around with the angels at a parent-teacher conference and they're explaining to him, did you see what they did? Let me give you the list. And he's showing up going, oh my gosh, guys, I cannot believe that report I just got about you. This is not okay. You're supposed to be doing better than this. We have this idea he's going to come disappointed. He's heading home and we have to hide in our rooms from him. 
But I want you to picture this differently now because that is not what he described, is it? So let's picture a wedding celebration. Your friends have finally tied the knot and now everyone has gathered for cake and dancing and pictures. Just joy all around. You celebrate together and then the couple heads out on their honeymoon amidst all of your cheering as they walk out. Barring some major incident on the way home, you arrive home full of joy, excited, happy. This is how Jesus described his attitude of his return. An attitude of being pleased and full of joy. Returning from a wedding feast. That's what he described. This is an amazing thing that we need to wake up and realize. And In our false view of God, we have become blind to the truth that he is looking at us with great joy and pleasure, not with disappointment. God absolutely hates sin, and sin in the life of a believer is an ugly thing that needs to be and will be addressed by God, and we also need to address it now. But God's love for you, his joy in you, his longing for you, that is what he sees when he looks at you because he looks at you through the lens of Christ. We need to realize that. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of the Father for your sins. And why did he do that? Did he do that because of his great disappointment? Did he say, I'll do their homework to, to fix it for them? No. He didn't do it out of, out of disappointment. Hebrews 12.2 says this, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. He took the wrath of God upon himself because of the joy before him. And that is the joy that he finds in getting to bring you home. The joy that he finds when he sees you. That is an incredible thing. And it's time that we stop living our lives in this way of how can I limit his disappointment? And we need to switch that around and start going, okay, so today, what can I do that when God looks at me, I'm increasing his joy in me? How can I increase his joy in me today? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what your life would look like for a day if you focus completely on what can I do to increase his joy? He talks about you being ready, having the lamps lit and burning. How we do that is by living to increase his joy, not living to hide from his disappointment. We need to flip this around so that we can understand God and why we need to be in awe of him. So now we finally get to it. This question of awe. When you think of God and the fact that he has made a way for you to escape the punishment you deserve in hell, when you think of the fact that he will forgive you endlessly when you confess and not only forgive you but cleanse you of all the unrighteousness, when you think of being able to boldly approach his throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and help in your time of need, all because of what he has done for you, when you Think of the fact that he saw you at your worst point and instead of disappointment, he saw great joy because he knew he could redeem you. When you think of his ability to create the entire universe by just saying a word, when you think of the fact that he knows when every sparrow falls and he sees you as infinitely more important, when you remember his desire for you to be with him, these are the things that should bring us to awe. You see, awe is this almost dumbfounded, speechless amazement that causes us to fall on our faces in adoration. It sucks every word out of your mouth and yet fills your bones with the fire that has to be released in praise. It's an incredible thing and it's our response to who he is and what he's done. And the problem is we've lost it. We've lost it. 
I want to close today with a call to arms. There's this battle going on within the church that has to be addressed, and it has been going on for far too long. We need to wake up and fight. We've lost our awe in God, and because of this, we're becoming more and more useless in our attempts to reach our lost world. We need to understand that we, we find more awe in songs about God or pastors who speak about God and events that promote God than we find in God himself. We hear a song and we go, wow, that moved me. Man, that meant something to me. I want to hear that again. And we'll play that song over and over and over again. And sometimes we hear it and we go, wow, I really like the lyrics and what they're saying. But most of the time it's I like the lyrics because of what they're saying to me, what I gain out of it. A lot of times we hear a song that has got great truths about God and we ignore that side of it because we just like the song because of how it makes me feel. Now, you may look and say, no, I think that the church really has worship down, like we worship in music in a, in a great way, but you need to understand something. In the church, we would have zero issues with preference of style if it was all about awe of God. We wouldn't care what it sounded like. We would be completely focused on what was being said, not what it sounded like. And that's the issue, is if we're going to be honest, we have to admit that there is a side of it where we've lost our awe in God. It's more about what I want. So my awe is in myself, and my worship is in me. It's my desire, and I'll withhold from God what he deserves from me because it's not the way I want. This is a sign that we have lost our awe in God. We hear a message that really spoke to us and moved us, and we go, man, I really, really like that pastor. I really like listening to him. I really love the way that that he shares the word. And we give a lot of praise to a pastor and oftentimes walk out the door and do nothing with what was said. Because we don't have awe in God. We have awe in in the feeling that it gives us. We have awe in, in the people and how they present it. And it's time for us to fix this. This is what I call in the church uh, these accepted idols. We're okay with worshiping the created things over the creator because those things are about the creator. Um, We talked about this a while back. Pastor Giles explained this idea of a one degree difference when we're aiming for a far target. I was talking with the college students in life group today about this too. It's the idea of when we send something to the moon or something to Mars, if we are off by 0.001 degree, by the time we get the distance of destination, it is off by a huge margin. And that's the problem with this, is we worship things that are about God and not God himself, and it looks parallel to start. For the first few steps, it looks just fine. We're walking side by side with this line, but by the time we get further down, we are further and further from where we're supposed to be. It seems innocent, and that it ends up being a huge issue over time. That's why we need to come back to this. We need to remember that worship and adoration and awe belong to God alone. And if we want to return to the design that God has for his church, we need to battle in our own lives to find our awe in God again. And only then will we begin to truly reach our world because they will see our amazement in who he is and what he's done. And they will wonder about the hope that is in us. The reason why you don't have people coming up and asking you, man, why are you different? Why, why is it that, that you seem to have hope in these times of complete darkness? Maybe that's because you've lost your awe in God. You're not amazed at him anymore. He's old news, or you just don't think about him very much. And so I want to give you an exercise for this week. I encourage you to take some time this week to sit down, grab a pen and paper, 
And I want you to write down everything you can think of that God has done for you. Every single thing that he's provided for you and done for you. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I have enough paper in my house for this. Go buy some. It's cheap. But do this. Write it down. Then when you cannot think of anything else, I want you to pick up your Bible. Open it up and search and see if there's anything you missed. If you're going, where do I start there? Open up to the book of Psalms. It's a good place to start for things that God has done. You get to see David and the other authors writing all about the incredible things that God has done for them, even in the midst of really hard times. They talk about his provision. They talk about his faithfulness. They talk about his forgiveness. They talk about his planning, his love. And there's incredible truths in there. And I want you to find them. Search. And when you cannot find any more, I want you to go outside. Now, I know it's cold. So maybe you need to go for a drive. But some of you are up for this. Go, go out for a run. Go for a walk. And, and take a look around at creation. I love that Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that we have no excuse when it comes to not knowing God because all of creation points to him. And I want you to look and see what he created just by speaking. I want you to see the, the incredible joy that is there because he says he made this for our pleasure and joy. I want you to see it. And when you cannot see anything else, go back inside. And I want you to thank God and praise God for who he is and what he's done. And then the next day, I want you to do it again. That may seem like overkill. Some of you may be looking and saying, I don't have time to even do that one day this week. And I want you to realize something. That's what hit me when I was putting this together. I was thinking about going, man, that's a lot to do in a day. I don't know if I have time for that. And then it hit me really hard. I realized, okay, so I'm saying I don't have time to worship my God. He has time to do everything, all these things for me, and I don't have time to worship him. What is my schedule set up for? What is my life about if I don't have time to worship God for who he is and what he's done? We have to wake up to this. Yesterday, I sat down with the worship team before their practice, and I said, okay, we're going to take a couple minutes, write down, write down one to five things that God has done that are deserving of your awe. And I wrote down mine really fast. I realized, oh my gosh, there's a lot of things. Like, I could keep going way beyond five. And, and just keep writing these things down. And that's not what, would, what really amazed me. In fact, what amazed me actually saddened me. It was the fact that I know all of these things that God has done for me, and I don't think about them every day. I have to sit down and do something to really think about it. I forget these things. That's what's sad to me. That's why we've lost our awe. We forgot what God has done. We don't remember. We don't take time to remind ourselves. The nation of Israel was told in the Old Testament, hey, Keep sharing what God has done so that it does not get forgotten. So that no one forgets what he has done, the amazing things that our God has done for us. Share them. So I would encourage you, share these things with yourself. Remind yourself of these things. Share them with your family. Share them with your life group or your Bible study or people at church or whoever you gather around. Share these things with them so that they're not forgotten by you or the people around you so that we all have more and more reason to be in awe of God. That is what he wants us to do. That is what he's called us to do. And it may seem like overkill, but I want you to understand something. This is how we truly know God. We begin to know God when we understand fear and awe of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowing is to fear God, to be in awe of him. Some of you are sitting in here today and you're hearing the incredible things that God has done. 
And you're going, wow, I did not know that. I didn't know the way that God had approached us. I didn't know that God had done these things to save us. And I want you to hear some incredible news. God loves you. And he didn't just do these things for those of us who show up every week. He did this for everyone because his desire is that no one should be separated from him. But there is a problem. We have sinned, all of us. And the word sin means to miss the mark. We have missed his perfect standard. And because of that, we deserve to be separated from him. And we do that by being separated eternally and sent to hell. But God did not want that for us because, like I said, he loves you. And so he himself came and he lived perfectly. And then he gave up his life, his blood that was innocent was shed on your behalf. And I love what Jesus said on the cross as he breathed out his last. He said what we read as it is finished. It was actually a Greek banking term, which doesn't sound very poetic on the cross, does it? But here's what it was, paid in full. He literally said, I have paid every cent on this debt. No more is owed. That means you don't have to pay a single thing to God because it's already been paid. It's already been paid by Jesus. And the amazing thing is, is three days later, the father raises Jesus from the dead and gives him all authority in heaven and on earth to give you new life. And all you have to do is believe. You don't have to show up at church every week. You don't have to have a specific special secret dance or handshake or a prayer that you say. No, it's not about that. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That when he died, it paid for your sins. That when he rose again, he now has the authority to give you new life. Put your faith in him and him alone. That means put the full weight of your salvation like you're rappelling off a mountain and Jesus is the rope. You are leaning back so that if that rope were to break, you would fall. Your full dependence is on it. All the weight of your salvation on what he has done and nothing that you can do. If you are willing to do that, then you are saved. That's it. That's all it takes. It's a beautiful thing. God loves us so much. He made it simple. He made it easy because he wants all of us to be with him. And those of you that are sitting in here going, you know what? I already know that. Doesn't that bring you back to awe in God? Shouldn't that be something that we are amazed at every day? That should be what gets us out of bed in the morning and keeps us up at night. I love David looks and says, man, I read just your law and it keeps me up at night. I can't sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night and I want to read more of it. It's kind of weird when you read through the genealogies. It's a little boring. But David was not in awe of the words, but in awe of the God behind them. And we need to be as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to know you. God, that you have shown us yourself through your word, through Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, as you say in your word, that we can have a picture of you. But God, I pray that you would wake us up to the fact that we have lost our awe, that we are no longer amazed by you. And God, it's not because we don't want to be, it's because we forget to remember what you've done. It's because we forget and don't understand, God, that the things that you have done are that incredible and they are something to be remembered and drive us daily. God, fill us with that boldness. The same Holy Spirit that was there on day one, the day of Pentecost, is the same Holy Spirit that is in us now. Help us, God, not to limit by forgetting, 
but that we would stand out boldly, that we would start seeing people come to know you because of the hope that is clearly displayed in us as we walk around in this world that needs to see it so desperately. And God, if there is anyone in here who has not put their faith in you through Jesus Christ today, would you please draw them to yourself, God, that they would respond today and today would be the day of salvation, not just another day that they walk in darkness and lost, but that they would find this hope that drives us, God, this reason to be in awe of who you are and what you've done. God, give us time this week to worship you. Help us to clear our schedules and give you the honor that you deserve from us. We praise you and we thank you for all you've done and for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be dismissed.